You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. We're going to be continuing our study, studying through Paul's letter to the Romans. And this week we are in chapter 13. So if you open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. So you got the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then the book of Acts. And then the book of Romans, if you're looking for it in your Bible. So Matthew, Mark, Luke's, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans, and then chapter 13. We encourage you to open up there. If you use the, your phone for your Bible, then you can just find it on there. But uh, we encourage you to use the YouVersion Bible app if you're looking for a good Bible app because we put our live notes in there. So if you go into the menu and then you go into events, then you can find our event in there. And it'll have all the stuff that's on the screen and some more, even some links that you can click on and just a way that you can further interact with the sermon. So we encourage you to do that. So let's begin our study this morning by reading some of our texts, which comes from Romans chapter 13. We're going to begin in verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Verse 7. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Verse 8, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. For love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and we come to it this morning desiring to hear from you and desiring, Lord, to be changed and transformed, to be challenged, Lord, in some areas where we need to be challenged, to be strengthened in areas where we need to be strengthened. Lord, we desire to see you, Jesus. We desire that you would make the gospel so clear in our hearts and minds, Lord, that we would be filled with hope and with confidence, and that we'd leave this place not only transformed, but filled with hope and confidence as we face the world we live in. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So are you guys loving this election cycle we're in? I mean, nothing, nothing brings together people like politics. Am I right? I mean, are you guys, some awesome TV commercials and get to hear all these great things. I mean, are you, you guys are just really enjoying it like I am. Obviously not, right? Like nothing, uh, maybe I wouldn't say nothing brings us together like politics, and maybe nothing divides us in this country perhaps more than politics. And I think we can all agree that these are pretty tumultuous times that we live in in our country politically. Some of you here today are probably convinced that uh, our current president is the worst president we've ever had in the history of our country, and others of you here today are convinced that the last president we had before him was the worst president we ever had in the history of our country. Uh, others are, of you, you know, you, you just are like, I don't want anything to do with it. I don't even want to think about it. I don't want to talk about it. Well, the good news is that Thanksgiving is coming up, so you're going to have the opportunity to gather with your extended family and uh, argue with that aunt and that cousin, or at least listen to other people argue about politics, those, those family members who love to do it. Thanksgiving is a perfect opportunity for that. And it just brings us to a really good question, a really big question, that all of us innately deal with as Christians, whether we, whether we want to face it or not, and that is this. How are we as Christians to relate to the society that we live in and the culture that we live in? There's a famous book, kind of a classic book, a study on this subject by a man named Richard Niebuhr. And he wrote a book many years ago called Christ and Culture. And uh, in that book, he outlines five different ways that Christians have historically tended to relate to society and culture. 
And on the one extreme, you have those who totally withdraw and separate from society, like the Amish and like the monks who live in monasteries or people who go and form Christian communes where they can be totally separate, right? Separate from society, separate from the world, untouched by culture and, and the world. But the thing is, right, if we do that, then how can we fulfill this mission that Jesus has given us to be salt and light and to, be, uh, to bring his light into the world? On the other extreme, you have those who, who just fully embrace culture with, with no reservations at all. And yet the Bible tells us that this world is fallen, therefore the culture is fallen. And it warns us, the Bible warns us not to get too wrapped up in the things of this world. And in between, right, you have some Christians who believe it's their Christian duty to get involved in politics and shape society and create a, a just and fair society. And you also have other Christians who say that, you know, Christians shouldn't have anything to do with politics whatsoever. We should only focus on the kingdom of God and, and maybe saving people out of this world, not just trying to, you know, put up new window dressings on a world that is, is doomed anyway. Throughout history, you can kind of track it, how Christians have related to society in different ways throughout history. During the Reformation itself, you had people who took different approaches. You had, on the one hand, Ulrich Zwingli, the Swiss reformer. He was a pastor, but he was also a patriot. And he took the Bible in one hand and the sword in the other hand, and he led troops into battle and, and fought in a war. On the other hand, you had people like the Mennonites, who said that no Christian should ever get involved with any civic part of society. You should never fight as a soldier for any country in the world because, you know, that is the right way to be a Christian. Now, in our text today, we're addressing this issue. How should Christians relate to society and culture in light of the gospel, in light of the gospel, right? So how do we, who have become sons and daughters of the Most High King, sons and daughters of God because of what Jesus did for us, how are we to relate to the earthly governments that we find ourselves living under? How are we to relate to the surrounding culture? So in his letter to the Philippians, Paul wrote this phrase, which is quite well known. But here's what he said. He says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as Christians, we are citizens of heaven. That is our true home. That is where our hope lies. That's where our hope is at. But here's the thing I want to tell you about this passage that's, that's interesting. I think a lot of people don't think through when they're reading this passage. Do you know where Paul was when he wrote those words? Well, he was in house arrest. He was in Rome, right, under house arrest. He had Roman guards chained to him 24 hours a day. They were on four-hour shifts. They would change out every couple hours. Now, there are a group of letters in the New Testament called the prison epistles, and, uh, and I've got a list of them there for you on the screen. The only thing is that that name, the prison epistles, is actually a little bit misleading. The only letter that Paul wrote from in like an actual prison was 2 Timothy. And he wrote that right before he was executed. But the other prison epistles, the other four that are called prison epistles, were actually written not really from prison, but from house arrest. Paul was under arrest in Rome. I mean, he was being held in Rome awaiting an appeal before Caesar that he himself had requested. Paul was living in a rented house. People could visit him. They could stay with him for extended periods of time. And the guards that were guarding him weren't primarily guarding him to keep Paul from running away. They were primarily guarding him to keep other people from coming and assassinating him or trying to kidnap him. You see, because there were a lot of people, mostly Jewish radicals, who wanted Paul dead because he was preaching about Jesus and many Jewish people were converting to Christianity. And Paul had been falsely accused of a crime. We read about this in Acts chapters 20 through the end of the book. 
Paul had been accused of a crime, but even when it was proven that he was innocent, that he didn't commit the crime, the authorities refused to let him go and release him. They were holding him illegally and without a charge. And so Paul used his right as a Roman citizen to get fair treatment and to appeal his case to Caesar. And we know that Paul's appeal was eventually successful. He actually did uh, get exonerated in this case. In other words, I want you to see the irony here. Here's Paul telling the Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. And yet here's Paul taking advantage of his own rights and privileges as a Roman citizen. And so you got to ask the question, Paul, which is it? I mean, come on, man. Is, are you a citizen of heaven or are you a citizen of, of earth? And he would say, well, I, I'm both. I'm a dual citizen. See, this is a unique position that we have as Christians. We are dual citizens. We're citizens of heaven who are also citizens of, of earthly countries as well. So on the one hand... God tells us that we are to see ourselves as sojourners, that we're just passing through this world, that it's not our home, that we're on our way to our real home. But on the other hand, God tells us that we're also called to be ambassadors and representatives of his kingdom here on earth. And so in light of all that God has done for us, that's what we've seen so far in the book of Romans. It's been all about what has God done for us? How does Jesus save us? What has he done? And what has he saved us from? Now, in light of all of that, how do we live now in light of this hope that we have, in light of the future that we have, in light of all that we've received in Christ? How are we to live as citizens of heaven here on earth? And here's what we see in this chapter. Two big things. How the gospel shapes our relationship with society. That's verses 1 through 7. And then how the gospel shapes our relationship with culture. So how the gospel changes our, our relationship with society and then how it changes our relationship with culture. Let's begin by looking at the first part. How does the gospel shape our relationship with society? So the main reason why Paul brings this up here is because of what he said at the end of chapter 12. It's one of the benefits, by the way, of how we study the Bible. We kind of go consecutively through a book. So we left off last week looking at this section at the end of Romans chapter 12, where Paul essentially says this. How does the gospel change how we relate to our enemies? Well, here's how. If someone sins against you, you're to forgive them. You're not to hold on to bitterness. You're not to seek vengeance, but you're to entrust that to God. Let God be your judge. Let him get the vengeance and the judgment and all that. You forgive people. Don't repay evil for evil. Let God be the judge, and you worry about building bridges with people, not about getting revenge. Now, we live in a world where to do that is super countercultural, right? Like it, we live in a world where bitterness and, and vengeance is, is kind of the way that we work. But God is calling us out of that. He's calling us to something higher, something greater, something better. I mean, imagine how different the world would be. Imagine how different your relationships would be if we were people of love and, and forgiveness rather than people of bitterness and revenge. And you, you think, wow, that would be incredible. But let's take that one step further. What if the whole world was like that? What if we lived in a world where instead of wars and, and fighting, there was a world where there was no more crime and, and no more war, and people just loved each other and forgave each other, and, and that would be great. Well, it would be great. But then what happens is you pull up your news feed on a Saturday morning on your phone, and what do you read? Well, you see the reality of the world that we live in. We see that people send pipe bombs in the mail to people they disagree with. We see that people go into synagogues and open fire and shoot innocent people during a baby dedication. There are people who exploit women. There are people who hurt children. There are people who take advantage of the elderly. And you can't help but look at that and say, okay, really there is evil in the world. 
And so wait, so, so what does the Bible say that we should do about that? Are we just supposed to forgive people and then just not do anything about what they do? Like not make them pay for, for doing these, these heinous crimes and these terrible acts? I mean, yeah, they will have to stand before God on Judgment Day. But you know what? There's a lot of days between now and Judgment Day when they can do a whole lot of damage still. And so this idea of everybody just loving each other and being nice, well, it sounds great in theory, but there's some real evil in the world. And so if the Christian solution is just, oh, well, you just got to forgive everybody and, and then let God deal with the judgment, well, that's, first of all, it's not even practical, somebody might say. And secondly, it's downright dangerous. And not only is it downright dangerous, but it's actually maybe even despicable because it says that not only, it, it's not about protecting the victims and the potential victims, who might be hurt in the future. You're doing nothing by just saying, okay, hey, uh, I forgive you and God will deal with you. Jesus' disciples asked him, how many times should I forgive someone who sins against me? Should I forgive them seven times? They thought they were being very generous. I mean, seven times is a whole lot of times to forgive somebody who keeps doing the same thing to you, right? And Jesus said, no, not seven times, but 77 times seven times. And so the question is, does that mean that if somebody is abusing you, if somebody is hurting you, taking advantage of you, or hurting somebody else, that you're just supposed to keep on forgiving them and then let them, give them more and more opportunities to just continue abusing you and hurting you and, and maybe hurting other people? Is that what Christians teach? No, that is not what Christians teach at all. And that, that's where Romans chapter 13 comes in. Because here's the deal. On a personal level, we are called to love our enemies and forgive those who sin against us, right? That's what we read in chapter 12. But we're, we're making a mistake if we confuse the personal with the social in the sense of this. Romans 13 tells us that one of the ways that God deals with evil in the world is through human governments, the police, the judicial system, the courts, the prison. It tells us that God has actually ordained the institution of human government. Check out what it says in verse 1. It says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Verse 4, For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on evildoers. What this is saying is that there is a legitimate function of government in society, which is actually ordained by God. And it's ordained by God for uh, several purposes. And the main purpose is this, to protect the weak and the vulnerable and to punish evildoers. So when a government punishes those who do evil, they're actually doing God's work. Biblically speaking, the first role of government is to make sure that evil doesn't run rampant in society, and it's to punish those who do evil. So governments should be having laws against crimes, and they should be employing people to enforce those laws so that evil is suppressed. And that's why Paul says this here in verse 2. He says, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what's good, and you will receive approval. Verse 4, for he's God's servant for good. For if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. So if you are a public servant of some kind, uh, notice what it says here, that you are a servant of God in the community and you should seek to fulfill your role in a way that is just and righteous before God. In other words, also, the legal channels that we have at our disposal, they're part of God's grace to us. They're actually meant to be a blessing to us. 
So again, on the interpersonal level, if someone sins against you, then you are called to forgive them and not to seek revenge. But on a social level, we are to recognize that the legal and judicial system is ordained by God for good, and it's his instrument for justice in the world. So let me just give you an example of how this might work. So let's imagine uh, you wake up in the middle of the night and you hear somebody moving around in your house. Somebody's broken into your house. And so you sneak out into the hallway, you go out into the kitchen, and you, you meet this person. You have an altercation with this person, this burglar, and you're able to subdue them and pin them to the ground. What should you do? Well, should you just tell them, hey, I forgive you and, uh, you know, run along now and, and have a nice life? Well, no, because you don't know how many other houses this person has broken into. You don't know how many houses they're going to break into if you just let them go. And so what you should do is you should tie that person up, and then you should call the police. And as the police are on their way, you should cook that person some food and, and then tell them, hey, look, bro, I forgive you for what you just did to me. Uh, God has forgiven me in Jesus, and I forgive you. I don't hold any grudge against you for what you did. I'm, I'm going to pray for you that God gets a hold of your heart and, and gets a hold of your life and, and whatever's causing you to do this, you know, that God deals with that in your life. But then you hand them over to the police and when it comes time for the trial, you go in and you testify about what happened. Not as a form of retribution, not to stick it to them or get revenge, but so that justice can be done for the sake of the burglar himself and for the sake of society as a whole. So, so this comes about in a lot of abusive relationships. You, you get these kind of questions where people think that to forgive someone means that you protect that person from facing the consequences of their actions, whether legally or, or even in the relationship. That, you know, oh, well, if I forgive you, that means that uh, there will be no consequences whatsoever, and I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm just going to let you continue. Now, let me be clear. We should always forgive we should always forgive those who hurt us. And here's why. You don't, and you don't even have to wait for them to apologize in order for you to forgive. Forgiving, you're letting go of that thing. You're saying, I am truly going to let God be the judge over this. And here's why. Because holding on to bitterness and resentment, do you know what it does? When you hold on to bitterness and resentment, it's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. In the end, you're the only one who suffers. You're the only one who gets hurt from that. See, we are to forgive because God in Christ forgives us. But here's the important thing. Forgiving someone doesn't mean that you just allow them to continue abusing you or hurting other people. See, forgiving someone doesn't mean that you, you don't necessarily involve the police if a crime has taken place or been committed. See, over the years, I've heard of churches who don't report crimes that, that take place in their churches to the police. And they say, we're going to deal with that situation internally. And some of those churches have gotten in big trouble, and in some cases, rightly so, because usually what ends up happening is that they protect the perpetrator from the police rather than protecting the victim and any future victims from any future crimes. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul's writing to the Christians in Corinth about a situation where some of them were taking each other to court and suing each other. And Paul says, this isn't good. I mean, think about the reputation of your church in the community. You're airing your dirty laundry publicly, and this isn't good. And he says, you shouldn't be doing this. He says, you should be dealing with these things internally. But that's a different situation. Let me explain. Those were lawsuits, right? So this is kind of like small claims court. This is like, you know, somebody in the church, you lend them some money, and then they don't want to pay you back. So you go on Judge Judy, and you make a big deal of it in the public. And, I mean, that kind of stuff, really, we should be dealing with that stuff within the church. But when it comes to 
crimes, when it comes to things where people are, are victimized or endangered, we need to remember that the laws and, and the legal system are actually ordained by God in order to be a blessing, not just to us, but to society at large. Now, I anticipate the question, maybe not all of you would ask this question, but I'm sure somebody's thinking about this, like, well, what about Hitler? That's the big question with this section. Now, now let me be clear. I'm not naive, right? And I know that you're not naive, and that's why you ask these questions, because this chapter is painting a pretty rosy picture of, of the government, isn't it? But what about the Hitlers and the Stalins of this world? What about when the police are corrupt? What about when the government acts unjustly and unrighteously? Well, what does the Bible have to say about that? Well, it has quite a bit to say, honestly. Notice what it says in verse 2, that all authority is from God. And some people would say, well, what about Hitler? What about Stalin? What about evil rulers throughout history? All authority is from God in the sense that God ordains the institution and God allows people to get into those positions. But clearly, it is absolutely possible for someone to get into a position of power and then abuse that role and abuse that power. And if you read the Old Testament prophets, for example, they talk a lot about this, about how God is going to severely deal with those leaders who take advantage of their power and use it for evil rather than for good. And so in verse 5, Paul says, therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So keep in mind, what government is Paul talking about here? He's writing to the people in Rome who live in Rome, right, under the Roman government. Now, I don't need to tell you uh, all of the sins of the Roman government. Let's just say there were a few. Should I remind you that these are the people who nailed Jesus to the cross? Should I remind you that these are the people who, in just a few years after this letter is written, they will actually execute Paul the Apostle, the guy who's writing this, this letter, right? This is the government that said Christianity is illegal. They called it an illicit religion. They, they were a government who condoned morality. They, they were a government who persecuted Christianity. And so Paul is laying out here for us principles, principles which apply to all people at all times throughout history under all governments. But here's the thing to keep in mind. As we're told to submit to the authorities, the Bible also teaches us that submission to government is not absolute. It's not absolute. There are limits to it. And you know that's true of authority in every sphere of life whether it's in a family and marriage, whether it's in your role at work. Yes, we're encouraged to submit, but that submission is not absolute, right? There are limits to it. Absolute submission is due to God and God alone. So if the government or someone in authority commands something that God forbids or they forbid something that God commands, then obviously we are to obey God and not that human authority. He is our, our supreme authority. And there are examples of this in the Bible, quite a few examples. I'll just give you a few. For example, in the book of Acts, chapter 5, we read that the authorities come and they tell the Christians to stop preaching and teaching about Jesus. And they say, sorry, like respectfully, we're going to have to say no and, and we'll take the consequences, whatever they be. Because look, Jesus gave us a mission to go into all the world and tell people about him and the good news. And, and we have to obey God rather than man in, in doing that. Another example is found in the book of Exodus. Maybe you remember the story. When Moses was born, the Egyptian government gave a decree and an order that all of the newborn Hebrew babies had to be drowned in the river because they were trying to limit the, the growth of the Hebrew population. So they said, well, we're just going to 
you know, commit mass infanticide. Every baby that is born needs to be killed and drowned in the river. But the Hebrew midwives refused to obey that order. So that was an act of civil disobedience. They refused to obey the order because what the government was telling them to do was wrong. And then we have the book of Daniel, right, which is really interesting because in Daniel, we see Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right there. They're carried away into Babylon to this evil, unbelieving nation. And in, think about it, in the book of Revelation, the, the government that's used as an example of the worst possible evil government you can ever imagine is Babylon. That's the picture that's used, you know, because that's just the worst. And where are these guys carried off to? To Babylon. And not only are they carried off to Babylon, but they're given jobs in the Babylonian government. But yet they act so respectfully and they do such a good job in that system that they get promoted over and over again to higher and higher positions. Much like another person in the Bible who also worked for a pagan government, for an unbelieving government. That was Joseph, who again also worked so well under the leadership of the Egyptian government that he continually got promoted and then these people end up finding themselves in a position where one day they have an opportunity to do something great and to do God's work because of the position that they've attained by working faithfully in an unbelieving government system. And so we see an example that as believers, we have precedent for this, that there is a precedent for us participating in civic life and working under people who, who may not be godly people, but we respect their position and authority. And we can even through those means work ourselves up to a way where we're able to do the work of God through those positions. But here's what happens with Daniel. One day, the, the people come to him and they say, Hey, Daniel, we made a new law for this special holiday. We're not allowing anybody to pray to any god except for the king for 30 days. So for 30 days, it will be illegal for you to worship or pray to any god except for the king himself. And if you disobey this law, then we're going to throw you in a pit of lions. Now, think about this. 30 days isn't really that long. I mean, 30 days... You know, I could take 30 days off from, from praying and going to church, right? I mean, who, who doesn't want to do that? Or you say, well, why can't Daniel just pray silently with his window shut, his door closed, laying in his bed? Why, why does he have to do any, you know, nobody will know. He can just continue praying and, and nobody will be the wiser. But what does Daniel do? It says that he opened up his window and he stood there at his window and he prayed out loud. Do you see what I'm saying? He, he could have not brought attention to himself. But he purposefully, there's an act of protest is what it was when Daniel did that. He was making a public protest that this law is wrong and I will not obey it because I have a higher authority. And he said, so no matter what comes, it was an act of protest, an act of civil disobedience. And Daniel was prepared to take the consequences. And so on the one hand, where the, where the Bible encourages us to respect and support the civil authorities, even if they are not godly people, we're to respect their position and honor God by honoring them and submitting to them. On the other hand, if the state is demanding what God forbids or forbidding what God demands, then it's actually our duty as the people of God to practice civil disobedience. So the question is this, how does the gospel shape the way that we relate to society. How does the gospel shape the way we relate to society? First of all, the gospel makes it clear that the core problem in our world is not a political one, it's a spiritual one. So the gospel makes it clear. What's wrong with the world and what's wrong with us as human beings is not a political problem. It's, there is not a political solution to it. It is a spiritual problem. And what we need is we need a savior. We live in a world that is under the curse of sin and death. 
And no amount of legislation and no government is going to be able to fix that. What we need is a Savior who can save us from our sins and make all things new. And so government has its place, but we don't put our hope in the donkey nor in the elephant, but we put our hope in the lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one who is able to redeem what is broken in the human heart. And we say, Lord, let your kingdom come. That's what we look forward to. That's what all of us are truly longing for if we're honest in our heart of hearts, a world of perfect peace, a world of true justice where there's no more sin, no more wars, no more pain, where things are finally right. And that is what we look forward to because of the gospel. That is what we hope in. And when we understand that, when we understand the gospel, here's what it does in regard to politics. It sets us free from getting too caught up in the politics of this world. Because guess what? Think about this. If the politicians who are in office right now or the ones who are going to be in office in the future, if they just ruin this country and they drive it into the ground, you know, that doesn't really change anything for us. You say, oh, well, what if, what if you know, they persecute Christianity? Well, Keep in mind, he's writing to Romans in Rome. This has happened before, and it didn't end anything. God's mission went on. In other words, for us as Christians, it doesn't really change anything because our citizenship is not here on earth. Well, we are dual citizens, right? But our citizenship is in heaven, and it's from there that we await a Savior. Our hope is not in a comfortable life here and now. Our hope is in the kingdom which is to come, and the purpose of our lives here and now is not to make ourselves comfortable, but to fulfill the mission that God has given us. And so, you know, it's really easy to listen to all these political pundits. I I was watching this thing which was talking about the development of 24-hour news radio, and what they said is like, well, we have more time than we actually have news most of the time. And so what you end up with is all these commentators commenting on politics. And, you know, what they do, what gets ratings is outrage. And so that's what they're doing. They're just working us all up. They're getting all these political pundits. Everybody's got a comment, an idea on something. And they're trying to make us outraged all the time, particularly at people on the other side. And so well, we think about what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. He says that we as Christians are to be like soldiers who are sent on a mission. And here's what he says. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since the aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And I wonder if there aren't some of us who need to turn off the cable news networks and turn off the political talk radio because that's exactly what it's doing to us, right? You're getting all caught up in civilian pursuits, And when the truth is that God has a higher calling, God has a greater purpose for your life. See, and people who who disagree with you politically, just know this, they're not your enemies. Your calling in life, our calling as Christians is not to convert people to our political beliefs or ideologies. I mean, and think about it like this. We live in a country right now that is so divided politically. If we make the mistake of associating Christianity or associating as Christians too closely with one political ideology, then what we are doing, whether we want to or not, what we are doing is we are alienating half of society, right? We are alienating those who hold a different political ideology, and that is a huge mistake. We have a higher calling and a greater purpose than that. And so as good soldiers, we're called to not get entangled in civilian pursuits. We have to remember what our mission is and where our hope lies. And that's why the gospel transforms the way we relate to society. In verses 6 and 7, Paul talks about everybody's favorite subject, which is taxes. And he says, pay your taxes, right? And here's, here's why it's interesting. In Matthew chapter 22... We read about a time when the Pharisees came to Jesus and 
You know, they were always trying to find a way to discredit him in the eyes of the people. Uh, they thought that, you know, if they could come up with a question that would trap him, where there was kind of no-win situation, then people would turn away from him. You know, get him to somehow make some people upset, right? Lose half of his, his fan base, so to say. So they thought they had the perfect question, a no-win situation. They came up to him, and this is what they said. Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with truth. And you aren't swayed by anybody because you pay no attention to who they are. So they're really trying to butter him up with these first few words. And so they say, okay, here's our question. Tell us your opinion. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar? Now, this is a trap, and it's a pretty good one, too, right? Because there's no good answer to this question. If Jesus says, yes, you should pay the tax, then the people will be angry because they're expecting a liberator. And here comes Jesus. The Romans are occupying the country, and Jesus is telling them to actually fund them materially, like fund them financially. So on the other hand, though, if Jesus says, no, you shouldn't pay the tax, well, then they'll just report him to the Roman authorities. They'll have him arrested as a, for sedition and for um, insurrection. So what does Jesus say? It says, verse 18, But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me a coin used to pay the tax. And they brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this? Whose inscription is here? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed. And so they left him and went away. The reason this answer blew their minds was because Jesus wasn't just saying, yes, you should pay your taxes. Jesus was saying something much deeper and much greater. He was flipping the whole conversation. See, just as Roman coins bear the image of Caesar, you and me also bear the image of a great king and a great ruler. We bear the image of God. The word of God says that we are created in God's image and we bear the image of God. So give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. In other words, you bear the image of God. Therefore, you belong to him. So yeah, pay your taxes and all that. But much more importantly, Give yourself over to God, all that you are, your abilities, your body, your talents, your time, your mind, everything that you are. And that brings us to our second point. It's a good tie-in here to our second point, which is how the gospel shapes our relationship with culture. He says in verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. In other words, God is calling us to live radically different lives than the surrounding culture that we live in. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul paints this very vivid picture of how countercultural this life is that he's calling us to. He says, I call you to be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation amongst whom you shine as lights in the world. What he's saying is, if you live like this, if you bless and do not curse, if you truly love others, it will be so different, so radically different, that people will not be able to ignore it. They will absolutely have to take notice. Verse 11, because you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, 
Salvation is nearer to us now than it was when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness. Not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So these verses taken together, what they do is they, they give us a picture of how the gospel shapes our relationship with the culture at large that we live in. And here's what it is. We neither shut ourselves off from the culture, nor do we conform to the culture. So we don't shut ourselves off, nor do we conform. In the Gospel of John, chapter 17, we read the prayer that Jesus prayed over his disciples at the Last Supper. After he told them, you know, tonight's the night. I'm going to be crucified. You guys are continuing the mission with the Holy Spirit, but I'm not going to be with you anymore physically. And then he prayed over them, and here's what he prayed. He said, Father, I do not ask that you remove them from the world. Rather, I ask that you keep them from the evil one. But then he said, just as you sent me into the world, now I am sending them. In other words, they were to be in the world, but not of the world. They were sent on a mission to go into all the world and be salt and light and bring the message of life and hope. And you can't accomplish that mission unless you're fully engaged, unless you're engaging with people. And that means engaging with culture. God has a purpose with us. Do you know that? Otherwise, he would have taken us out of this world when we got saved. But for some reason, he's left us here. And he tells us what that reason is. He still has more to accomplish in this world, and he wants to accomplish it through us. God has more to accomplish in the world, and he wants to accomplish it through us. He has a mission for you. He has a mission for us. So as Christians, we aren't just kind of biding our time and holding our breath and hoping that we die soon so we can go to heaven. No, we're called to use the time that we have on earth to carry out his mission. Now think about this. There are a few things that you can only do in this life that you will not be able to do in heaven. Right? So there's some things which, like if your goal in this life is just to know God really well, well, don't you think you're going to be able to do that in heaven a lot better, a lot easier, and, and, a, and a, a lot more effectively? Or, or worship, right? We're, these are all good things, and we want to do these things, but we're going to spend eternity knowing God and worshiping God, but there are a few things that you can only do here and now. Let me give you some examples. So number one, relieving suffering. You know that in heaven, there's not going to be any suffering. So in this life, you have the opportunity right now to be God's hands and feet and to relieve suffering in this world. Another one is that you can meet someone's needs practically and physically. That's not going to be possible for all of eternity, but it is possible right now that you get to shine the light of Jesus by meeting somebody's needs. And another one is this, obviously, Sharing the gospel, sharing the good news, the hope of salvation with somebody, that is not something you're going to be able to do in eternity. That is something you can only do here and now. And so the way that we relate to culture in light of the gospel is this. We understand what time it is. We understand what time it is. He said in verses 11 and 12, our salvation is near. It's just around the corner. The night is almost over. Soon the new day will dawn. In other words, there is a sense of urgency there's not a lot of time left. Make sure you use the time that you have well. Don't get caught up in civilian pursuits. Don't waste your time on stuff that detracts from your mission and from your witness. But walk in the day and shine brightly in a dark world and make much attention for Jesus. So we don't shut ourselves off from culture, nor do we conform to the culture, but we live as missionaries within the culture that we find ourselves in. People on a mission from God in the world, but not of the world, 
clothed with Christ as our righteousness and not making any provision for the flesh. So in conclusion, you know what we see here in this chapter is that the fact that we are citizens of heaven radically changes the way that we live here on earth. On the one hand, we are fully engaged and yet we are radically different. Fully engaged and radically different. The gospel gives us a whole new perspective and it gives us a whole new agenda. And so we look to Jesus, the one who came to this earth, not for his own benefit, but for our benefit. We look to Jesus who gave up heaven and came to earth so that we who live on earth might become citizens of heaven through him. He was forsaken so that we could be accepted. He died so that we could live. He rose from the grave so that you could experience everlasting life and the everlasting kingdom. It'll be here before you know it. The day is dawning, but until that day comes, we have a mission in this world. And so Jesus said, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what is God's. So let me tell you that today. You bear the image of God. Are you giving yourself wholly over to him? Lord, as we, con we consider these things uh, from your word, Lord, first of all, we thank you for your grace in, in what you have ordained. And Lord, that we thank you for those who, who do serve us in our society and do your work in those ways. Lord, may, may we be good citizens. May we be lights in this dark world as we follow you. And Lord, help us to find that balance between when, when there are times when uh, we need to obey you and not man. Lord, would you show us those things? Give us wisdom as we walk through those things. And more than anything, Lord, we, we take away from this section what you said, Jesus, that uh, we bear the image of God and therefore uh, we owe you our lives. We owe you our all. And I pray that today we would do that, that not a single person in here today would leave without having said, yes, I, I give you everything that I am, every part of my life, uh, all of my soul, all of my being, I give it to you, Lord. Be king over me. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.